John 11, 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. So, so why do I need God in my life? God is just not relevant, not useful. But then things fall apart. Then you're surprised. And what do you do um, when you're desperate? Try praying. <laughs> uh, maybe that'll work. Um, for some people, only when things aren't going well is when faith is most tangible, most useful, makes the most sense. The funny thing is for other people, though, it's the exact opposite. For some people, when things are going well, faith is easy and obvious. God is good. God is generous. God is kind. I can see it. What I believe and what I'm experiencing align. So therefore, living an upright life makes sense. So even if I have to make sacrifices of things I don't want to do, it makes sense because it works. But then when difficult times come, that gets tested. Wait a second. Um, is God really good? Does God really care? Or if I've sacrificed all of these things, why would this seem to be the repayment for what I did? So when things are going well, faith is easy. When things are not going well, faith is hard. The passage we're looking at today, John 11, is one of those situations where faith is hard for people who are struggling, trying to make sense of a tragic situation. Lazarus has died. He's young. Um, he seems to be well-liked. And people are dealing with their grief. And in that, Jesus enters. Uh, and it's this wonderful moment, not only in John's gospel, but in the whole of the Bible. But its purpose in John's gospel is meant to show us something. John says he writes of these signs that Jesus did. And this is the seventh, the final, the climactic one, the raising of someone who is dead. John, who writes the gospel, says, I write these things so that you would have life. And while this is true of all of the Bible, and in particularly the New Testament, in John's gospel, it's clear that life, in its abundance, in its fullness, in its goodness, in its thriving and flourishing, is intertwined with faith, with believing. So John says, I've, I write the things that Jesus had done so that you would believe, and that by believing, you would have life. So you could see, even in this passage, faith is important. Um, in verse 25, he makes a claim that 
is, is one of those things, those anchor points that, that we should be evaluating. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? Profound. But his question to Martha, who he says that to in verse 26, is do you believe this? There's a sense in which he's entered into the situation saying, you need to trust me. And this is a situation where it's obvious in the way that it works out that he should be trusted. But in the going along, there is confusion. Can they trust him? Uh, in verse 15 to the disciples, uh, who are having their own trying to figure out what they're doing, he says, it is for your sake, I'm glad I was not there when Lazarus died, so that you may believe. So the disciples, the ones who will be the witnesses to who Jesus is and what he did, somehow what's about to happen is important for them and for those of us who will read what they wrote, like this gospel. Verse 42, when he prays, he prays out loud. And he seems to indicate he does not need to pray out loud. But he says, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So he's wanting uh, the response of what happens, not simply to be like, wow, look at that. That was amazing. But to be uh, what he means by faith, a certain trust, a certain commitment that John tells us is fundamentally life-giving. So as we look at this passage, I want to highlight how what happens here is meant to present to us something that if we believe it, if we um, find somehow a connection with it, with it, it, it should actually give us the kind of, of life and energy and focus that prepares us for the good, but also for situations like this where it's confusing, where we're weeping, where we're overwhelmed and can't face it. How do we get through it? What John is claiming and what the Bible presents is actually faith is not simply a crutch. Faith is so fundamental for all of life, but especially the times when you're most tempted to put it away because you're confused is actually when you benefit most from it. This is one of those scenarios. So what I want to talk about this morning is two things, the nature of this disordered world, but also the nature of God and humanity. So I'm going to begin with the nature of this disordered world. And the word disorder is a, is a term that comes up if you read theology to describe the world as we see it, but it certainly applies to this situation. There's death, there's confusion, there's sorrow, there's grief, there's being overwhelmed. Uh, things are not functioning certainly as we would desire. Martha and Mary did not want to be in this moment. Um, and so the world is disordered in certain ways that it makes faith distinctly hard. It sometimes faith seems naive, or it seems challenging, or it seems even insulting to try to believe a certain thing that the Bible teaches in light of a certain circumstance. And yet, what we're told is actually we can be shaped by, by this disorder and be given to cynicism or fear or discouragement, or we could be strengthened to see things with a certain perspective that actually enables you to keep going. Uh, to problem solve, to find solutions, to accept what needs to be accepted, those sorts of things. And, and we know because of this disordered world that we do have to trust. Um, the nature of this world is there are experts and sometimes what they say doesn't make sense to us, but you have to believe them. The problem in this world is there are also lying manipulative people and they may present themselves as experts and so therefore we need discernment. I recently went for my annual checkup and my doctor was sharing with me frustrations that he has of people that come in self-diagnosed and seeing him uh, 
as the mean, uh, coming in with an idea of they need a certain prescription, for example, um, that they know that they need, but they are just not empowered to write it. And so could you please do it? And, and the interesting thing about the conversation was he wasn't, um, he wasn't looking down on those who come very informed. What he was saying is actually there are so many resources, people come in really doing the research and he seemed to respect that they were coming in informed. So it didn't feel to me like arrogance, but he was saying, I've been practicing medicine for 25 years. And so the 15 hours you put in to understand a very specific thing is admirable, but you have to trust as I'm looking at everything as I'm evaluating you, that you might be wrong in your evaluation of what you need. And that makes sense to me, because I was just listening to the doctor talk theoretically about the practice of medicine, but I've been the person who feels like I've got a symptom and the doctor's not paying attention to it. Now I don't know what to believe. Is the doctor competent? Is he uh, tricking me? And so I know what it's like to be the concerned patient, but I happen to have a moment with a concerned physician and I found it compelling. I'm going to trust him. Uh, we have to navigate the world having to trust, even if while trusting, we need to be discerning, we need to be wise. Um, when Jesus is saying, you need to trust me, um, he's saying that, that in this world, if you don't, you will find ultimately, um, you'll be overwhelmed. But if you understand who I am, what I've come to do, I could lead you through. So what I want to look at in this passage is some of the complexity of the situation. So for example, um, the story itself is simple. Somebody died, lots of people are sad, Jesus comes in and he makes things better. And it seems like a simple narrative, but it's not because this is actually a story of what really happened. And so pay attention to the details. Yeah, everyone is sad, everyone loved Lazarus, but this particular need, the particular concern each has is slightly different. So how will Jesus come in with a solution that helps everyone? That's the problem in our world. We have these complex problems and we come up with the best solutions we can and they create other problems and they don't solve other things. And that's kind of what we have to accept. Um, different parties in this passage, the disciples in verses five to 16. Uh, it doesn't tell us that they may have loved Jesus, uh, loved uh, Lazarus in the same way that Jesus did, but no doubt there would have been an element of grief for them. But the presenting thing for them is not Lazarus is sick and we're concerned about it. The presenting thing is they're calling for you to go back to the region we just left because you, Jesus, are in danger there. So last week in John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and they pick up stones to stone him. Um, so it seems like Jesus and his disciples went to another part and now uh, come and heal your friend Lazarus. In verse eight, the disciples warn him, Jesus, if you go back to that region, they already picked up stones to kill you. Your returning to heal Lazarus puts your life at risk. Um, but they're aware that it's not just their own love for Jesus and their desire for the movement Jesus is beginning to flourish, but they're aware that if they go with Jesus and they want to kill Jesus, uh, the disciples themselves are at risk. So in verse 16, Thomas boldly says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So the disciples are not first and foremost thinking about poor Lazarus and his suffering. They're thinking if we go, Lazarus may not be the only one who might die. So that's part of this 
story. Now, Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, uh, both of them, the common theme is grief. They've lost their brother, but they are different people. And you could see their differences even in this brief narrative in verses 20 to 27. Martha comes across as quite bright, quite thinking, quite, in, quite informed, uh, theologically sound, strong conviction. And so uh, Jesus has a conversation with her about resurrection and she knows a lot, but it's clear from the conversation she is gonna learn something that deepens what she's already assuming. Mary, on the other hand, in verses 28 to 33, seems so overwhelmed by grief that Jesus comes as the comforter. He comes and he weeps with her. And so it's interesting, his interaction with Martha and Mary is slightly different, even though he loves them both uh, and they're both grieving. And then we have the group described as the Jews. Of course, there's nobody in this passage who's not Jewish, but this is the Judeans, people from this region, including the religious leaders in verses 33 to 37, who throughout John's gospel, their issue is evaluative. Is this the one that we thought God would send, that the scriptures predicted, or is this a fraud that we should reject? So as they're there grieving with Mary and Martha, um, their question is not so much what could Jesus do, but how do we discern whether or not he's the one who was sent? And of course, Lazarus, kind of passage, passive in this passage, verses 43 to 44, um, he's sick, and so his needs are different. His needs are not fundamentally emotional, um, but physical, and then he's dead, and therefore his need in verse to 40, 43 to 44 uh, is the impossible need, resurrection. So when we look at this passage, Jesus is entering into a situation where, where different people are experiencing what's happening in different ways. Is there one solution that will resolve it all? And that's the problem of many of the situations we face. Why doesn't God just do this? Um, well, well, that would fix the thing that you want, but, but, but God is the God of the heavens and the earth. And so, so is there a wisdom in how God is dealing with things? It's hard to believe that in our complicated world. Another um, example of complexity in this passage is just uh, trying to understand Jesus. Is Jesus actually competent? Does he know what he's doing? Because in verse four, he plainly says this illness does not lead to death. And then Lazarus dies. So is he doing damage control afterwards, trying to spin the story? Uh, so if you're a disciple and you're under the teaching of Jesus and you're trying to find out if he has divine insight, Jesus said plainly, this illness does not lead to death. And then in verse 11, he starts to use the language of Lazarus falling asleep. Now, is that a euphemism? Some people, something like death is so overwhelming that we don't want to name it for what it is. So we, we use these images to, to keep us away from the parts that scare us. When Jesus talks about Lazarus falling asleep, is he just not wanting to discourage them? Well, it seems that he has a very different view on death. And, and I wonder how many of you, even if you are Christian, still believe that fundamentally death is, there's a finality, it's an end. Uh, when Jesus says Lazarus is asleep, he's not being euphemistic, almost like we can't face the reality of the tragedy. He seems to be saying Lazarus is now in a state for which I can do something, almost like um, if somebody was soundly sleeping and, and you were told, go and wake the person up, even if you really had to push them, even if they uh, were a deep sleeper, you wouldn't fear an inability to wake them up. That Jesus is using the language of Lazarus sleeping 
um, it sort of exposes his view on death is slightly different than ours. So when, when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, follow what Jesus is teaching throughout the gospel and you realize he's not saying he will, his heart will not stop beating. He's talking about a deeper human need that Jesus is saying, I will spare him from that. And so Jesus is now taking something simple and deepening and broadening it, our own views on what we even conceive of death to be. And so in verses 21 and in verse 32, we see the deep faith of Mary and Martha, who both basically believe the same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's actually quite remarkable. They believed that he had a sickness that was so bad he wound up dying. They believed in the healing power of Jesus. Jesus, if you had been there, he would not have died. That is great faith. But now he's dead, and there's nothing any of us can do, including you, Jesus. They had true faith. They had real faith. Um, they did not yet understand Jesus was even more powerful than they assumed. And that raises another complexity of this passage, which is they're saying, Jesus, if you had been there, you could have prevented it. They do not know that in theory, Jesus could have been there. Why was Jesus not there? Because Jesus said, why don't we wait and go in a couple of days? Verse six, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. But Jesus, if you had been there before he died, you could have healed him. I wonder if somebody said to Mary and Martha, uh, you know, Jesus actually, it wasn't that the, the train was off schedule. He just decided not to come. The issue of Jesus's timing is exactly the kind of problem of why is God not acting now? Why are things unfolding such that if God loved me and cared for me, clearly, here's what I would understand an expression of love and care to be, and yet I don't see him acting. And that's where faith needs to hold on to. Does God still love? Does God still care? Will God bring me through? But in that moment, when you find out he could have done something but chose not to, how do you still believe that God is worth staying with if that's what you're thinking? And so this passage is a good picture that even the skeptics in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? At that point, some firmly believe he could have. Others know that's the claim. Jesus healed the blind. He fed crowds. Could he not have prevented this? And of course he could have. What they don't yet know is, but could he do more than that? And so, Faith gets challenged in exactly these kinds of times. And what's interesting is as Jesus arrives, we find that the situation is so overwhelming and troubling for those there that he himself experiences that. In verse 33, he's greatly troubled. In verse 35, the shortest verse in all of scripture, Jesus wept. Um, what's going on here? If he is in control, why not do something? His weeping makes it look like he's not in control and he's just joining with those who have to accept the reality that there's nothing we can do. And so it looks like Jesus is with the defeated. He's compassionate, which is admirable. Um, 
But at the end of the day, there's certain things he can do, but certain things he can't do. And so there's an interesting moment. This is not a key point of this passage, but I think is interesting for us in, in a sermon series titled, Come, See, and Live, because that's the invitation at the beginning of John's gospel. Come and see. And by the end of John's gospel, now are, is what you're seeing, uh, are you taking it in so that you would have life? So in John 1, uh, Jesus has a quest, is asked a question about where he's staying, and Jesus says, come and see. Um, and he's inviting those first disciples, Andrew, the others. Um, he's inviting them, come and see. And then one disciple comes uh, or has an interaction with Jesus where Jesus um, seems to already impress this person. This person seems like the one we've been waiting for. And that one goes and tells others, come and see. I think we found the Messiah. And there's an echo of it uh, when you move forward to Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, where he clearly communicates to, uh, to this woman something about um, who he is. And her message to the community is, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see. Throughout John's gospel, there's an invitation. Come closer to Jesus and see. So Jesus now has a question for them. Where is Lazarus? And in verse 34, they say, come and see. They're going to show him a grave. And that is what this world um, can put on full display. Come and see the war and the devastation and the poverty and the misery. Um, what the world doesn't do is say within it, is there something hopeful that's actually not just naive and something we believe because we can't handle the reality that wherever you go, there is something to see that discourages you. Um, now, this community has an invitation, come and see. What are we seeing? We're seeing the impossible. Even Jesus could have done something, but now here we are. This is the nature of life. Death ultimately has its power. Um, and therefore, as we take note of the things that Jesus has taught, I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's trying to train us to see differently. Look at me, and I will lead you through the world so you see differently, so that, that the, the thing that's on the other side of everything you believe is not death, finality, despair. And part of Christian faith and discipleship is to take in a more complex view of the world that still holds to the fundamental goodness even while we're frankly honest about the actual issues. So this passage presents to us, this world does not always work as it should. And Jesus who comes in is not only able to do something, but is greatly troubled by the reality of this world and how it doesn't work. So I wanted to talk a bit about the nature of this disorder world to prepare us for what the passage wants to show us is the nature of God and humanity. And by humanity here, we've already learned about the nature of humanity. We have faith where we don't have faith, but even our faith is weak. <laughs> it's a faith in what we know and understand, not really the faith in the deep goodness of God. And therefore, it's a faith that ultimately can fail. Jesus talks about a renewal that if we understand God, it changes who we are as human beings, and therefore the nature of God will change the nature of humanity. So I want to talk about the nature of God and humanity. So what are we to believe? What is it in this passage Jesus wants us to see that if we take hold of it, it will prove life-giving. And I'm going to highlight um, 
three of the big picture things. There's lots of things here, but I think these tie into the major themes of John. One of John's themes in his theology is love. And it's clear in this passage that Jesus as somebody who loves is already recognized by those who are there. The sisters in verse three, uh, they refer to Lazarus, he whom you love is ill. That's actually important for them. Um, which actually, how is it that the sisters are able to say, if you were here, you could have done something, and yet they're not immediately angry that he didn't come in time. No doubt part of it is they're convinced that Jesus actually loved them. And therefore, they don't have the content to make sense of this moment, but that love keeps them engaged with Jesus rather than turning against them. It keeps them trusting. Um, and then in verse um, 36, it says the Jews, uh, those who are coming, they note, see how he loved Lazarus. They could see by his emotion that, that he loves. Uh, now, the, if, if you've been around church circles for a while where people talk about the different Greek words for love, uh, these words that they're talking about is phileo, this brotherly love, Jesus, the human being, loves. But John, our narrator, uses the, the word that's often attributed to the, to the love of God, agape. The narrator wants to make sure that we understand that, that it's not just a read of Jesus' emotional state. Wow, he's weeping. He must have really loved Lazarus. But it's a factual reality in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's important to this story. Jesus came because he loved them. And so then you see in verse 11, Jesus even to the disciples, our friend Lazarus. Jesus is using relational language. He loves them, and therefore, that's something that's important for us to see. What is it Christians are to believe? We're to believe that what John tells us is that God is love. That love certainly was helpful to Mary and Martha in keeping them engaged while they were not understanding things. Another thing that was pointed out to us that we are, it's clear as part of the teaching of what we're to believe is the presence of God. Um, these kinds of situations. Jesus, if you were here, you could have done something. And the implication at that moment, I could imagine them saying, Lord, bring Jesus quickly. Um, because if he's here, he could do something. But then it raises the question, well, Jesus, where, where were you? And okay, Jesus, you're the one that has the power of God, but God, aren't there others you could work through than this one? So God, where were you when we, we needed you? Um, in verse 42, as Jesus prays out loud, one of the things that he wants us to see, the reader, he wants the hearers then, and John who writes this wants us to see, he says, he prays this out loud, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus, in the previous chapter, I and the Father are one. Now he's saying, I've been sent from the Father. In other words, it's not two different things, but in other words, this is an extension of God. The question, where is God in this story? And the Christian answer is God is right there in their midst, but they don't see it. They don't yet know that Jesus is more than just a guy that can do remarkable things because of his faith in God, but that he and the Father are literally one. Jesus prays that we would believe that Jesus was sent from the Father, that God is not removed from the world and its disorder and suffering, but God is a God who comes in his time into the world. We don't see that. God, where are you? If only you would have done these things. And what Jesus is saying, God is there. You just don't know it. So don't give up. And then we see God's 
protection. Um, you know, there's various uh, commentators trying to explain why was Jesus weeping? And there's a number of explanations offered, uh, all that I think could be true. Jesus loved, and therefore when you love somebody who dies, it's sad, and it's that simple. Jesus wants people to believe, and there's skepticism present, so he's angry that there's unbelief. Um, Jesus is misunderstood, so maybe he's upset about that. There's so many reasons that could explain why Jesus' emotional state ex is expressed as it is. I think it's helpful that we don't actually, that John doesn't define for us, because it means in the thing that you're wondering, uh, here's a time when I'm grieving, is Jesus connected to that? Uh, what we get in this picture is, yeah, Jesus comes and he weeps with those who weep, and we don't need a specific explanation. I certainly do think that one of the strong arguments, though, for what he was feeling was the fact, not simply that he's seeing people that he loves suffering, but that he's about to do something um, which has a different character than you might just assume. So it's not just a raw display of power. It's not, here's another sign. Because that's one of the questions that could come up, right? If, if Jesus could have been there to help Lazarus, but chose not to, he intentionally delayed so Lazarus would die. I think some of you would say, what a great moment. Jesus used this opportunity to show us his greater power. I'm sure some of you would say, but that's so unfair. Aren't there other ways to show his power than to drag Mary and Martha through days of weeping, four days of their lost brother? It could feel a little bit like Jesus is using Lazarus and his sisters to bolster his own ministry. He waits for Lazarus to die, so now he could show them what he really can do. And I think it would be fair if we only had this passage to walk away with our skepticism to conclude that. But if you read this passage in its context, you would know that that's actually not what's going on. When it says in verse 38 that Jesus is deeply moved again, and he goes to the tomb, a lot of the commentators would say, this is not just empathy, this is not just sorrow, but there's, there's an anger in here. There's, a, there's a, a being troubled. There's something about this moment that ties into what we feel when there's injustice and when there's war and when there's death and there's tragedy. There's something Jesus is in the midst of, and he's about to do something about. And what we find is not simply another opportunity to display Jesus's power as though this is just something to, uh, to build a stronger movement as if it's easy for him, but he's now coming to face what nobody has been able to face. Those who believe him don't believe he could face this. Those who are skeptical about him themselves have no solution. Jesus is about to confront death itself. And it's not just a display of his ability. It's a coming into this complicated world and demonstrating there's something so awful and terrible that for Jesus to repair it, it is costly. He comes, he is sent by the Father coming into our midst to face death itself. So why does Jesus delay coming for Lazarus? It's interesting when you get to verse 40, the story ends so wonderful that there's a restoration, that it is easy to put aside whatever Lazarus suffered, whatever Mary and Martha suffered, whatever Jesus suffered is trivialized given how remarkable the resurrection is. And so in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do they not now see it? Trust me, on the other side of all of this confusion, on all the things that you think is impossible, God can do something better than you can anticipate. Did I not tell you that if you believed, 
you would see the glory of God and how glorious it is that God gives a second chance to Lazarus. They see the glory of God. What's interesting is John's theology. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cross is Jesus's humiliation and the resurrection and ascension is his exaltation. In John, the cross is still humiliating. He's mocked, he's crucified, he's suffering. But there's something about John, the writer of this gospel, that actually sees the exaltation of God begin with Jesus' resurrection. So it's John who records Jesus as saying, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Lifted up on the cross. But John, whose theme is God loves us, sees when Jesus is crucified as not, wow, how awful humanity is that that's what we do to people. John sees, look at Jesus who was sent to do that for me. So when he says, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? John is, yes, reporting that God is glorified through his great power in this moment. But why did Jesus delay coming? Is it so that Lazarus could die and Jesus could show that he could do something even about death? Well, now we go back to the perspective of the disciples. Jesus, if you go to help Lazarus, they're gonna kill you. Why did Jesus delay? So that Lazarus could die and the women could grieve and he can show how he's even greater than that? No, Jesus delayed so that if he went, he knew not that Lazarus would die because he would raise Lazarus, but that he would die. And that is why he timed things. Um, in chapter 10, they pick up stones to stone him, and, and he says, for what work have I done that you want to stone me? And they say, it's not for any of your works, it's because you, a man, claim to be God. What we're gonna look at next week, now Jesus has done a work that they say, we need to kill him. If he has done this, everyone's gonna believe in him. So rather than seeing the glory of God, that he has the power of the creator to raise the dead, they see it and their response is, we need to kill Jesus. And that becomes the plan. And so the reason our series is ending in chapter 12 is chapters one to 12 are years of ministry. Chapters 13 to the end of the gospel is just recording several days. Jesus's hour is coming. It's because he did something so remarkable in raising Lazarus that the conviction to kill him is there. Why did Jesus delay? Not so that Lazarus would die and could be raised, so that he would die. And in managing the complication of disorder, this disordered world, he will have to, to face death on behalf of Lazarus. So yes, Jesus does not take Lazarus or his sister's suffering for granted. He weeps with them, he's troubled. But he knows as the good shepherd, he will take care of them by laying down his life. And that is where John says, we see the glory of God, which is that Jesus did not allow Lazarus to die because that would be useful because there's no doubt that Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus comes into the situation for the sake of the disciples, for the sake of Lazarus, for the sake of Martha, for the sake of Mary, for the sake of the skeptics, for the sake of the 21st century reader. John says, Jesus delayed in this moment so that he would be the one who would be handed over to death so that if we believe in him, we will see the glory of God. The glory that the one who suffered for us did so because he loved us and the one who has the power over death promises that if we believe that he's the resurrection and the life, then the glory that you're wanting to see, if you believe him, you will 
one day see. And so the nature of God, in verses 25 to 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. So, so there is, Jesus is not saying that any of us is necessarily going to be spared death. That though he die, what I'm saying is, if I'm the resurrection and the life, death is more to me like sleep. It's not your finality, but it's something you need to pass through. But he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that's quite a remarkable thing to say, which is when he says I'm the resurrection and the life, he's not saying if you trust me as you get through life, one day life will be given to you. He's saying when you trust me, that's when life is given to you. That's when you become alive. And if you live, though you will die, you will actually never die. Jesus is not saying life is the reward you're gonna get after living faithfully. He's saying life is what gives you when you believe that God has loved you, when you believe that God is with you, when you believe that God ultimately is your protector and is walking through this world, that he is the good shepherd. If you trust him, Jesus is saying, I will bring you through everything. So though you live and believe in me, you will not die. And in that sense, this particular sign is helpful to us with our fears, our doubts, and especially the most hardened among us who find it impossible to believe. Uh, sometimes it just takes some reading, some thinking, some learning. You have questions that there are, are actually answers to, but they're deep questions, complicated answers. Spend some time reading, and you can work them out. There are, are deep things inside of us because of this disordered world and because of our disordered nature that no matter how compelling the argument is, we're not going to believe because certain things don't make sense. What does, Jesus, what does Jesus want you to believe? You know, here's a list of things you need to do on my behalf. He wants you to believe that he loves you. So the question is, why wouldn't you believe that? And is it that there's not enough information? And maybe a compelling argument needs to be made, but there's something in us to say that actually sounds uh, more than my mind can comprehend to make sense of. The unbelief is not in the insufficiency of God, but, but Jesus wants us to believe that he loves us, that he was sent, and that he will lead us and protect us. Why is it those are the hard things to believe? And there's something in us that even if you could become convinced that the Bible presents a God who loves, but does God love me? That's the case nobody could make. And Jesus is saying, you need to trust me. And if you trust me, you will have life. And then that life, those things that I want you to believe will actually be the very things that sustain you. And so Lazarus is a great picture because you find yourself thinking, there are all these churchgoers that believe easily. There are all these people that seem to be thriving, but there's this problem where I'm stuck and nobody else is stuck. And so I'm the one who is beyond help. And so Jesus comes to a tomb where it's sealed and he calls the name of a dead person, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus didn't understand anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't earn anything. He just received the grace of God that Jesus was sent into the world to call people and to give them life. And so the thing is, if a guy in a tomb could hear the call of Jesus and come out, um, how could God not get through to you? What is it about you that's in a worse situation than somebody that's sealed behind a stone rock? And that's the thing, it doesn't always make sense. We can't answer for everything. 
But the message of John's gospel is because God's loves, he sent Jesus to suffer on your behalf. He has faced death. He will face the impossible. Trust him, and if you follow him, you will see the glory of God. And yes, we need to study theology and work out the details of that, but don't make it too complicated too quick. <laughs> when you can't make sense of things, if you know that Jesus loves you, and if you know that even if you don't understand it, he will bring you through, you have what you need to face this world with all of its confusion and complexity. And so the nature of God who loves, who gives, who is more powerful than death, faith in that will change your nature. Believe that God loves you. Believe that God sent Jesus to lead you. Believe that you have a protector. And then as you try to work that into whatever you're facing now, you'll have strength. You'll go forward. On the other side of it, you will see the wisdom of God and maybe God's glory won't simply be what you see, but God's glory will be revealed in who you are in those moments. That's what faith can do. Let me pray. Our Father, we come to you as a church, people who are supposed to believe. Yes, many of us believe, and some of us believe more deeply or with greater comprehension than others. And Lord, we trust every time we gather, there's somebody here who just is having trouble, whether or not they're committed to Christianity. Lord, we know that it's only the spirit that gives life. And in the same way that you need to raise our bodies, you also need to bring life to our dead souls. Uh, Lord, if there's anything we can do, show us. But in the meantime, open our hearts to receive your grace that, that your life would be at work in our midst so that whatever it is we're worried about, whatever it is we're facing, whatever it is we're trying to do, whatever it is we're rejoicing in, that somehow your love and your presence and your provision and protection would be crystal clear to us. Show us that grace. Grant us that faith. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.